0: This morning's reading is from um, Ezekiel, the 16th chapter, which you'll find if you're following along on page 842. Ezekiel 16, title is Jerusalem as an Adulterous Wife. We pick up the story at verse 8. Later I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into covenant with you, declares the Sovereign Lord, and you became mine. I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointments on you. I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put sandals of fine leather on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace round your neck. And I put a ring on your nose, earrings on your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. So you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were of fine linen and costly fabric an embroidered cloth. Your food was honey, olive oil, and the finest flower. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. And your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty, because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the Sovereign Lord. But you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by, and your beauty became his. You took some of your garments to make gaudy high places where you carried on prostitution. You went to him, and he possessed your beauty. You also took the fine jewelry I gave you, the jewelry made of gold and silver, And you made for yourself male idols and engaged in prostitution with them. And you took your embroidered clothes and put on them and you offered my oil and incense before them. Also the food I provided for you, the flour, olive oil and honey I gave you to eat, you offered as fragrant incense before them. That is what happened, declares the Sovereign Lord.
1: The second reading is taken from the Book of Revelations, chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. It may be found on page 1234 of the Pew Bibles. Page 1234. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes... I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God." This is the word of the Lord.
2: As we stand, let us pray. We ask, Lord Jesus, that we would see something more of the beauty of of you about which we've just sung, and that seeing you in all your glory, we may live lives to your praise and glory. For your name's sake, amen. Do please be seated. Well, as Charles was saying, we're in the second of our Lenten series entitled A Spiritual Health Check, and the title of today's talk is Have You Forsaken Your First Love for Jesus? taken from Revelation chapter 2. And as you look at the title on the screen, you might well think, well, that's a very personal question, isn't it? My relationship with God is my own affair. Thank you very much. Others might think that's a very emotive question. I never put my Christian faith in terms of love. Commitment, yes. Conviction, yes. Service, for sure. But love, not so sure. Others might think that's a very apt question. We know the first and great commandment to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And if I'm honest, maybe God is putting his finger on a rather sensitive spot here. The story of the Bible is one big love story with God loving his people with a passion and inviting people to respond to that love We were thinking a few weeks ago that the verse that appears most frequently in the Bible, 51 times, is this. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And a frequent image in the Bible is of God as a bridegroom, generous, persevering, loyal, faithful, And his people as a faithless bride, fickle and quick to look for love elsewhere. We've just heard it in that very powerful and moving reading from Ezekiel. But God, in spite of all this, keeps loving his people. He keeps calling them back to himself. He longs for his love to be returned. And that's what we're thinking about today. Now, I want you to think back to your school days and to that dreaded, end of term report. Do you remember the the standard formula? It goes something like this Tim has worked hard. He's full of good and independent ideas and he persevered well through the coursework. However and here's the real meat of the report however he is very distractible And he often seems much more interested in his neighbor's iPhone than in the principles of quantum mechanics. He must learn to concentrate. And this is exactly what's going on here in Revelation chapter 2. On the neatly numbered page 1234, if you'd like to have it open in front of you, Paul's, uh, sorry, Jesus' letter to the church in Ephesus. (coughs) It's a letter, but actually it reads a bit like a school report, and it's clearly been a curate's egg of a term. But because it's not a letter and not a report, Jesus begins by introducing himself, as the custom was in letter writing in those days. Chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the golden lampstands. This is Jesus talking. He holds the seven stars. That's a symbol of his authority. He's king of kings. He's lord of the church. And he walks among the seven golden lampstands. At the end of chapter 1, it tells us the lampstands are the churches. So Jesus is walking amongst the church. He's here. He's with us now, today. So Jesus has both authority over the church and an intimacy with the church. So if anyone is supremely qualified to write a report about a church, it must be Jesus. Now, just before we dive into this report on the church at Ephesus, some might say, but this is a letter about Ephesus, not St. Michael's. That's true. But I think although it is a specific letter written to a specific church about a specific situation, this letter also expresses a concern that applies to all churches through all time. So let's ask ourselves, what might Jesus be saying to us at St. Michael's today, both individually and collectively? Notice he writes to the church But, of course, the church is made up of individuals. What might he be saying to me? I love the way verse 2 begins, I know. It's such an encouragement, isn't it? Jesus knows us. He knows our hearts. He knows our situations. He walks among us, and he understands. So there need be no pretense with Jesus. And in the first part of his report, he gives us three positives. The first is their activity. Verse 2, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. Jesus knows the church, and he sees it busy, active, serving, helping. Jesus knows about our late-night preparation on a Friday as we get ready for the children's church. Jesus sees us getting up early on a Sunday morning, To come early to welcome or to get the coffee ready, even when all our neighbors might be enjoying a Sunday morning lion. Others won't notice, but Jesus knows. He sees our activity. And doesn't that take the pressure off us? It means we don't need to brag to one another about how hard we're working in the life of the church. Jesus already knows and he commends them on their activity. The second great positive is their discernment. Second half of verse 2, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. And again, their discernment is seen in verse 6, they hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which Jesus also hates. They are rightly Intolerant of the things which God hates. Now, of course, we live in a world that sees tolerance as an absolute virtue. It's like the 11th commandment, isn't it? Or, Or perhaps for some, the first commandment Thou shalt be tolerant of absolutely everything. Now, of course, tolerance is a good thing if it means. the uh, the right of others to uh, freedom of speech or freedom to express their faith. Or we tolerate the irritating foibles of the person sitting at the next desk to us. It's good to be tolerant. But of course, there are things that God hates. So we must hate them too. Proverbs 6 gives us a list of seven things that God hates, like a lying tongue, We should be intolerant of untruth. God hates hands that shed innocent blood. Obviously, God hates the scheming heart and so on. If God hates these things, so should we. The trouble is that the tolerant orthodoxy says that there is no absolute truth and there is no greater crime than being intolerant. So we hound a bishop out of his appointment because he doesn't hold the same views that we do. If we disagree with others and we say so, we will be called an intolerant bigot. We'll be accused of hate speech, might even be charged with a hate crime. But even our tolerant society balks at murder And if God hates certain practices and in this case the practices of the Nicolaitans seem to be some sort of idolatry and cultic immorality if God hates those things so should we. And Jesus praises the Ephesian church for not tolerating evil. Jesus praises the Ephesian church for being clear about right and wrong. They show discernment God calls us to be holy, and so we should be. The third positive in this report is their perseverance, verse 3. You have persevered and endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. There's no doubt that many early Christians suffered for refusing to call Caesar Lord. So they endured hardship for Jesus' name. Some were even killed. Many were marginalised. And still today there's the cost of not going along with the prevailing cultural mindset. Maybe we'll be dropped from a circle of friends, not invited to certain events or parties, we'll be taken advantage of at work, might even be passed over for promotion. The New Testament has a lot to say about perseverance. Some letters, for example, the letter to the Hebrews, was specifically written simply to tell the church to keep going in tough times. So here we have the Ephesian church with three A stars in their first half of their report. However, look at verse 4. However, I hold this against you. Or the NIV says, Yet I hold this against you. And here comes the rebuke You have forsaken the love you had at first. And Jesus points out their errors not to crush them, but because he loves them. Come back to the classroom again. You know that your teacher cares about you when he marks your work properly, when he commends you for the things you've got right, but also highlights the things you've got wrong, and with that famous red pen, writes in the margin what you should have put. I had a headmaster from the age of 7 to 13 who wrote his little piece at the end of my report, and for 15 consecutive terms, it said, coming on splendidly. Now, I'd like to think that that was true, but I know that there were some terms when I was not coming on splendidly. And actually, I didn't really respect the man in the end because I knew he hadn't read my report. He didn't know me. Jesus points out their errors because he loves them and he wants them to change. So the Ephesian church gets three A stars and a C. Hebrews 12 tells us that the Lord disciplines those he loves because he wants us to improve. Of course, discipline is closely related to the word disciple, which means learner. He wants us to learn, and often we learn best from our mistakes. And the criticism is that they have forsaken their first love, or as this version puts it, the love they had at first. You see, the Christian faith is not primarily about rules or going to church or even beliefs or behaviours. It is fundamentally about a relationship with the living God, a God who loves us with a passion and wants us to love him in return. There was an article in the paper a little while back about a man who left his wife at a service station by mistake. And he only noticed 40 miles down the motorway when he asked her for a toffee. (laughs) And we sometimes see couples like that, don't we? See them in the restaurant, they don't talk to each other, both playing with their iPhones, slowly drifting apart, no longer really sharing their lives spending more time with others than at home, losing the intimacy. And the same can be said of individual Christians and churches. The Ephesian church, and perhaps we need to ask ourselves, our church, full of activity, but what drives it? Is it a love for God or duty? Serving out of pride, Or maybe an obsession or wanting to build a big successful church rather than serving the Lord Jesus out of love and gratitude. The Ephesian church and perhaps we should ask ourselves our church was marked by discernment but what drives it? A love for Jesus or a harsh judgmentalism? a legalistic desire to get one over the other person, wanting to show that we are right, that we are guardians of the true way, and they are wrong. A harsh orthodoxy without love is very ugly. The Ephesian church, and perhaps our church, was marked by perseverance, But what drives that perseverance? A grim determination, a pride or a love for Jesus that's prepared even to face exclusion. The love that drove the church in the first place can slowly but surely become hard and harsh. We can end up serving our own egos, building our own little empires, even wanting our group to be the most successful group rather than serving out of a love for God. Albert Camus, the French philosopher, said this, the church has offered us a palace where Jesus is king. But when we arrive at the palace, we only see protocol, pomp and circumstance, business, buildings, plans and programs. But the king is not there. It's a pretty savage indictment, isn't it? But Jesus, having made this diagnosis of a church losing its way, he immediately prescribes the treatment. And it's there in verse 5. Three courses of treatment, three steps back to a love relationship with Jesus. Verse 5, consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. So first, remember or consider, remember how far you have fallen. We look back to our early days as a Christian. Just think back to your early days when you first came to trust in the Lord Jesus. We think of our love for his church. I remember how I hated being away from the church on a Sunday. When I was a student, I I longed to go to church twice on a Sunday because I loved the worship so much. I loved the biblical preaching. I felt like I was being fed spiritually every time I went there. I loved the people. I wanted to see them. And if I wasn't there, I missed them. And people missed me. I think of my zeal for the cause of Jesus when I first became a Christian. How we'd go round the university campus inviting friends to events and not giving up just because people said no, but persevering, asking them again. Constantly inviting people to things. And we think now how easily our Christian life can be rather lacklustre and how easy it is for us to make excuses. I'm so busy now. I have no time really to read my Bible more than a cursory glance at my iPhone on the tube. Certainly no time for a home group. And well, the church doesn't really have my sort of people. It's not like when I was a student and there were loads of people like me. But friends, that's what the church is a wonderful collection of all sorts. That's what we're meant to be. That's what Guy was reminding us last week. People with loads of different gifts, but also all backgrounds and cultures and social backgrounds. And and it's lovely when you see that mix happening over coffee and people not just in their own little cliques. Jesus says, look at your Christian life when you first came to faith and look at it now. Consider how far you've fallen. That's the first step back, just to remember. And sometimes when I look back to how I was when I was first a Christian, and look at how I am now. It's a helpful reminder. Second step back is to Repent. And of course, repent is not just saying sorry, it means changing our heart and life. We must repent of our pride, pride of our own achievements. Repent of routine, just going through the motions. Repent of compromise. Maybe there's something wrong in our lives. We know it's wrong and we know it's choking our relationship with the Lord Jesus. And we don't want to let it go. Jesus says, repent. Repent. Repent of a lack of discipline, not giving time for Jesus. Plenty of time for friends, for hobbies, for the greasy pole, but Jesus gets squeezed out. Does Jesus have first call on our time, or just the fag ends? I remember before I got married, catching a train from Cambridge to London, just so that I could have a 15-minute coffee with Lucy at uh, King's Cross Station. And then I got the train back. It was a four-hour round trip that included a bus replacement service. Now, you could say that I was pretty keen to spend time with her. And you'll be glad to know I still am. But I wonder if, perhaps in our early days... As Christians, we long to spend time with Jesus, and now we think, four-hour round trip? Hey. Hey, time with Jesus is one, they often say it's one the night before. It's the battle of the duvet, going to bed earlier, earlier, setting the alarm 20 minutes earlier so we can have time with Jesus. So remember, repent, And the third step back is to repeat. Verse 5, do the things you did at first. And this is the other side of the coin of repentance. Repentance is turning away from wrong, from the distractions, and now we're called to go back to our early Christian life. Do the things you did at first. It's not rocket science. It's wonderfully simple. Just get back on our Christian bike. Get back into those old habits of our early Christian life. And this is a letter to the church, so perhaps we need to ask others to help us get back on our Christian bike. Maybe we need to join a home group to have some sort of accountability or a prayer triplet or a prayer partner, someone we meet with regularly who'll keep me up to the mark and I'll keep them up to the mark. Someone who'll ask me those uncomfortable questions about my love For the Lord Jesus. Think of uh, two young people you know who are in love. We see a few of them here at St. Michael's, especially in the evening congregation, a few engaged couples. Timo. They can't get enough of each other, they can't spend enough time together. Longing to be with each other all the time when they're apart, and when they're apart, constantly sending texts and making phone calls. Talking about the other person with their friends all the time. And something you see in blokes, a kind of smartening up. Remember, we had a lodger who used to live with us, who, um, well, he he was a student, so you can imagine the kind of appearance. But... He then fell in love. And he started to shave. And he started to um, wash his clothes more regularly. In fact, he started to buy new clothes. He even asked me for advice about a haircut.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> he was desperate. He challenged us, Jesus challenges us with this statement You've forsaken the love you had at first. I suppose the question I just want to ask us as a church and us as a group of individuals is, have we? Have we lost something of that first love for Jesus? If so, remember it's a short root bag. Remember, repent, repeat. There's a man called Robert Robinson who had a fairly wild youth. And he came to faith listening to the great evangelist George Whitfield in the eighteenth century. Robert Robinson became a pastor and wrote a couple of hymns. One of them we're about to sing. He wrote it in seventeen fifty seven, Come, O fount of every blessing. And later in his life, Robert Robinson wandered from the Lord. His Christian life became routine and dull. And on one occasion, he was riding in a a coach. And a woman in the coach was singing the hymn, Carmo Fount of Every Blessing. And Robert Robinson started weeping. And the woman said to him, why are you weeping? And he said, I am that poor unhappy man who wrote the words of that hymn. I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy the feelings now that I had then. And the woman replied to him, Sir, the streams of mercy are still flowing. The streams of mercy are still flowing. So as we go through this Lenten series of talks, and as it were, we kind of look in the spiritual mirror We do a spiritual health check and ask ourselves the question, have you forsaken your first love for Jesus? We might conclude, we might well conclude, I'm prone to wander. I'm prone to leave the God I love. But the answer to this predicament is not to beat ourselves up, but to look to Jesus, the God who loves us with a passion, the God who keeps calling us back to himself. And as we look to him, pray, take my heart, oh take and seal it, seal it for your courts above. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we know we don't love you as we ought to. We know we don't love our neighbors as we ought to. And we thank you that you love us enough to correct us. And we pray that along with this Ephesian church, we would hear your call to love you above all things. And we pray, Lord, that you would indeed take our hearts. Take and seal them. Seal it for your courts above, but also seal it for now. So that our walk with you might be close. And that we might be more effective in your service. And more full of the joy of your Holy Spirit. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.